listening to Ramp, the Insight Squared podcast. This is Ramp, the analytics podcast that helps you grow your software as a service business with the power of data. This week's episode is brought to you by Insight Squared's custom SaaS benchmarking report. Want to compare your revenue churn, MRR, LTV, and more to other SaaS companies that are exactly the same size as your business? Visit bit.ly slash SaaS benchmarks to see the free benchmark report today. I'm your host, Kara Hogan, and there's been a lot of panic discussion lately in SaaS. The venture capital market has adjusted downward, and SaaS businesses everywhere are feeling the effects. But Ajay Agarwal says there's no need to panic. He's the managing director for Bain Capital Ventures in the Bay Area, focusing on early-stage application software and SaaS investing. His portfolio companies include SaaS standouts like Optimizely, Gainsight, and SendGrid. And he's seen firsthand the challenges of growing a company. Before joining Bain Capital in 2003, Ajay was head of sales and marketing at Trilogy, where he grew annual revenues to $300 million. He explained that the reality of the market has changed, but that it's not the end of the world. It's a great time to start companies because, you know, when times are more difficult, fewer people decide to become entrepreneurs. So there's less competition for talent. There's less competition for funding. It's less likely that if your company gets funded, five other copycat companies will get funded. And therefore, it's less of an arms race. Ajay specifically invests in those new businesses, the early-stage SaaS companies. He explained that this is the phase of growth that he finds most exciting. You know, my background for 25 years has been in B2B software. And, you know, back when I was in a startup company called Trilogy, it was not called SaaS. You know, we'd sell perpetual software. You got a license contract and an annual maintenance contract. Um, But the basic elements of how the build that business, grow that business. We grew that from zero in revenue to 300 million in revenue in, in six years. All those elements are the same today with SaaS. Now, SaaS is fundamentally a different set of economics because you're recognizing the revenue on an annual basis. Uh, the software's hosted in the cloud as opposed to being on-prem. So that certainly opens up a tremendous number of new opportunities that were impossible to serve in the old on-premise days. But the basic elements of how do you find a market opportunity, how do you build a product that fits that market, how do you build and grow that company, I think those are unchanged. And clearly, every industry, every business process is going to be enabled with some kind of software, underlying software technology, some combined with people, some combined with hardware, some combined with robots, some combined with sensors, but ultimately software is going to be at the foundation of every major business process. And so that's what's exciting to me. I personally like getting involved early when some of the core questions about exactly which market do we want to go after? Do we have the right product to go after that market? Have we thought about pricing it correctly? Who's the sweet spot customer that we want to go after initially? I prefer to get involved at that stage when some of those questions aren't yet totally ironed out. To me, it's just the most fun and fulfilling part of the journey. You know, when a company gets to 50 million or 100 million, that's that's also rewarding in a different way. But I, I think, you know, far less interesting than when it's a PowerPoint and a couple founders. Ajay also invests specifically in big data and machine learning startups because he believes strongly in the power of these technologies. He said that eliminating the human error from data entry will give businesses a huge advantage. 
what's interesting about you know the history of SaaS and and the history of B two B software is that historically, you know, there's always been you know some element of the software that requires human data entry. Classic example CRM, where salespeople on a daily or weekly basis have to go and enter the updates for their accounts. Oftentimes, the salespeople don't like to do it, so they have their sales engineer update the accounts. Um, but even beyond the basic data entry. You know, there are a whole set of things, you know, that people refer to as rules that are essentially codified formula or equations from the company that get put into the software. So, for you know, again, in the CRM example, a great example might be X percent of deals that get through stage four are going to close in the quarter. You know, that, that may be some rubric that the company's used historically, and then that rubric gets implemented in the software. The problem with a human-driven approach, whether it's on the core data entry or it's on these rubrics or, or rules, is that you know, humans are imperfect. The data oftentimes is incorrect or wrong. Uh, these rubrics are based on gut feel or pattern matching that that one individual has. You know, The beauty of machine learning and big data is the machines can actually collect all the data. They can collect the data from every single deal that was ever done inside the company and actually figure out mathematically what is the likelihood that this particular opportunity at this stage is going to close. That machine can actually incorporate a whole set of factors that have never been incorporated before. Um, you know, when I ran sales and marketing at, at Trilogy, one of the rubrics I used to have is, hey, if, if the CRM is telling me the account's going to close in this quarter, but my legal team has not yet done red lines to the contract, then I don't think it's going to close. And so I would take every single account in my CRM that was forecasted to close, and I would call my legal team and say, have you guys finished the red lines? That was sort of essentially a manual step I would take. The beauty is you know, these machine learning systems can automatically incorporate all that data. They can determine how often is the salesperson actually meeting with the client you know, based on the calendar data and email data. They can tell if the legal folks have gotten involved with this account based on email data. And they can correlate all those different signals and determine, okay, this is actually account closing or not closing are highly correlated to these signals. And this is what we think. And so I think you're going to see this kind of approach be leveraged in almost every aspect of B2B software where you can reduce the dependency on humans to enter data, the machines can automatically infer the right rules or rubrics, and then the human beings are really more in the position to start making decisions based on those insights instead of spending time on less value-add activities like entering data. So I think it's a huge, huge opportunity. However, early-stage companies are often very difficult to measure according to the usual benchmarks because they haven't had time to mature. How do you identify which companies have the potential to succeed? For us, it largely starts with the founder of founders of the company. I mean, we many of the investments I've made have been pre-revenue, if not the, the majority of them. So there are literally no metrics that you can look at empirically to make a decision. And so a lot of the decision comes down to spending time with the founder or, or founders. And, and what are the things we look for in those individuals? First and foremost, they have to be people we want to work with. And, and vice versa, you know, high integrity, dynamic people that we want to be in business with for the next seven to 10 years, because that's how long it takes to build a billion dollar company. You know, secondly, the best founders in our portfolio are real domain experts, meaning whatever space they're going to attack, they know it 
intimately. And they know it maybe because they came from that space, or if they didn't come from the space, they know it because they've interviewed 50 or 100 people in the space, and they've networked their way to a set of experts and, and literally sucked their knowledge dry to the point that they're domain experts. And you know, a great example of this is you know, we were early investors, first institutional investors in a company called Kiva Systems, which is a, a company now part of Amazon. It was sold to Amazon for $775 million. And we met the company it was pre-revenue. The founder had just built a prototype of the warehouse automation system and the robot. And part of the way we figured out whether he was a domain expert is we introduced him to the head of global distribution at Staples, an executive who had been in the distribution industry for 30 years. And that executive fired four hours worth of questions to our founder. Literally every single reason why this shouldn't work and why it wouldn't work. And the founder handled every single one. He didn't necessarily have answers to all of them, but he certainly knew enough about the space that none of the questions were a surprise and he actually had great answers. And this executive from Staples called me the next day and said, I've been in this industry for 30 years. This founder knows more about this industry than anyone I've ever met. And to me, that's really the test of domain expertise. The third quality we look for is what are the people around them like? You know, their co-founders, any early engineers or hires they may have made, because great founders hire great team members around them. And then finally, you know, we look for someone that just has something in their life or their experience that is an example of overcoming overcoming the odds, grit, persistence, fortitude, whatever, whatever adjective you, you want to use. And that might be through a life experience, that may be through an athletic experience, an academic experience, but typically the best founders, we have, have overcome adversity before uh, in order to achieve something great, sometimes in the startup realm, but oftentimes in some other realm of their life. So that, that hopefully gives you a feel for the kinds of things we look for. We are analytic guys, and you know, as a company scales, I think we're always intimate with the numbers. But when it comes to early stage investing, where I spend my time, it's really all about the person. You know, people ask me all the time, "Hey, do you look for a million dollars in ARR, or this number, that number, this month-on-month growth rate?" And my answer is really all of that. None of those are the reasons I invest. When you've decided to invest in a company, what are the metrics you're looking for as they grow from that really early stage? Three metrics I care about are sales efficiency. How hard is it to sell this product? If it's really hard to sell this product, then you've got typically a a product problem, a market problem, or a sales execution problem. And it's important to figure out which one of those three. If it's sales execution, it's easy to fix. If it's product or market, that's harder to fix. It's almost never a pricing issue. Uh, Oftentimes people think it's a pricing issue. It's usually not a pricing issue. It's usually product market or sales execution. So how hard is it to sell this product? Typically that's reflected in some notion of your payback time, you know, on your sales and marketing investment. Um, But it's also reflected in other things like how robust is the pipeline? What kind of velocity are you getting in the sales organization? So that's, that's an important metric. The second one, I look at is, is gross churn. Net churn is also important. Ultimately, that that in some ways is the ultimate metric. But gross churn basically tells you for what you are selling, what percentage of the clients you know, a year later or a month later say, I'm getting value out of this. Are you actually delivering against the value proposition that you were pitching? If a lot of people are churning, then you're not delivering. And again, the, the key is why are you not delivering? You know, did you overpromise? Does the product not work? 
Was there a bunch of training and onboarding required that you didn't provide? Or is the value proposition just not that compelling? You know, when times get tough, people turn off projects that maybe aren't on the top two or three on the list. And so the growth churn is, you know, another metric that, that we look at. And then third is just, you know, month on month growth rates. Is, is everything growing? Your new MRR is growing, not just your cumulative MRR, by definition should be growing as a SaaS company because you get to start with what you already sold the month before. But is new MRR in this month greater than the new MRR last month? Is the pipeline this month greater than the pipeline last month? Is, you know, are all the, metrics sort of moving up into the right. And you can debate what percent month over month you like to see, but that's also an important early metric that we use to, to get a sense of, okay, is, are things working here with this business? So those are three things we look at. Obviously, there's a lot more than that. And a lot of it in early days is anecdotal because you don't have a lot of empirical data, but those are those are the three areas we, we probably spend the most time. Right now is a tough time to raise funding considering the recent market correction. How do you see today's VC market changing? Do you think it's a tough time for early stage startups to raise around? Yeah, so I actually think this is a great time to start a company. You know, I think whenever there's market dislocations, like you had in 09, 08, 09, and, and now, you know, to a lesser degree today, it's a great time to start companies because when times are more difficult, fewer people decide to become entrepreneurs. So there's less competition for talent, there's less competition for funding. It's less likely that if your company gets funded, five other copycat companies will get funded. And therefore, it's less of an arms race. In some ways, during frothy times, so many people are getting funded that you're constantly raising money in order just to retain your employees and keep up with the competition. So all of that sort of returns to, to more sane levels, which I think is a positive. You know, if you look at when I first started the venture in, in the venture business 13 years ago, the successful companies typically required about $30 million of external funding to get to success, you know, some kind of exit, whether it's an M&A outcome or an IPO. If you look at it today, typical SaaS companies are raising over $100 million, if not $150, $200 million. I mean, it's insane the amount of money required. And I think that world is over, at least for the time being, because these late stage growth financings, you know, that whole world has gotten tempered. You know, the mutual funds are pulling out. The rounds are getting smaller. The valuations are coming lower. So it's much harder to raise 50 to $100 million in a Series C or Series D than it was a few months ago or, or over the last couple of years. And so I think what that means for early stage companies is they can't count on that coming back. So they have to learn to build their business more capital efficiently. They have to learn to, to monitor and manage their burn. And they have to say, hey, I'm going to get to profitability on $30 million invested, not $100 million. Now, if those days come back, and the money is essentially free at the late stage, sure, you can always add fuel to the fire. It's much easier to press on the metal on the pedal than it is to, to hit the brakes when you've you've staffed up you know a huge number of people and increased the burn. So so that's why I think it's a great time for early stage companies, great time to build a company. I think for companies that are later stage today, you know, the advice I'd give is try and get to profitability sooner, try and you know, raise around half as big as the round that you were looking to do and recognize that the the post money of your last round is somewhat irrelevant to what valuation a new investor might be willing to come in at. What do you think is the right burn rate for an early stage startup, especially considering they should be a little more conservative right now? 
where should they prioritize in terms of sales, marketing, customer success? Yeah, I think it, it's all over the map. I mean, part of it depends on how how much IP is behind the technology. I mean, we see certain companies that their initial solution is very narrow and fairly light, so they don't need a lot of R&D early on in order to start driving revenue. We have other companies where the product footprint is you know much broader and much deeper, and therefore there's a bigger R&D spend in order to get the, the product out the door. And so the way we think about it is really how do you meter your sales and marketing spend? And what we try and tell companies in this environment is you know, spend very little in this period to really prove out your model, even if that means you're not growing at all. Just get the end-to-end model working and working at a level of efficiency that you feel is sustainable. You know, we, we look for a payback period typically of 12 months or less on a sales and marketing investment. You know, we, we want to make sure the gross churn and the net retention numbers look good. You know, we encourage companies to make the investments in customer success early to, to really prove out the end-to-end models working. And then once that model's working, then start scaling the capital and scaling the burn. So we try and keep the burn very low until you've got that end-to-end model working. And then once you do, and those unit economics are proven out, <clears throat> then it's really an exercise of how expensive is the capital. If the capital is very expensive, burn less. If the capital is cheap, like it was the last couple of years, you're in a position to burn more. But don't burn at all until you've got that and then unit economics working. In a tough market, how can startups prioritize investing in vital things like culture without going too far? Most people think culture means having a cool office and free beer. So how can you balance having that great culture without burning too much cash? You know, culture, in my mind, has nothing to do with do you allow people to be barefoot or in the office or, you know, bring dogs in or, you know, all those classic examples, drink beer. You know, I think cultures are really a, a derivative of your core values. And most of the ways to express culture have nothing to do with the, the sort of perks uh, around the office. To me, the best story I can tell around culture was back in my days at Trilogy. And we were, you know, our, our CEO, our founder, knew the CEO of GE at the time, who was Jack Welch. And we were in a sales cycle with one of the divisions of, of GE. And we had a big meeting and the champion, in this case, Pice, an individual who was, I don't know, eight levels down from Jack Welch, was in a room with us and said to myself and my sales rep, looks like the decision's going the other way, you know, to the competition, not to, not to us. And my sales rep said to him, by the way, do you know that our CEO knows your CEO? And how would your CEO feel when he gets a phone call telling him that you made a bad decision? He, he probably did it a little bit less overt way, but he was basically trying to send the message that, hey, we've got this senior to senior connection and don't threaten your career by making the wrong decision. And this executive, again, who's probably eight levels below Jack Welch said, you know what? Jack Welch will promote me because I made a decision that's in the best interest for GE, despite you know the fact that someone more senior might feel like due to a relationship or some other reason that I'm making the wrong decision. And so I'm sticking with my decision. And in fact, if Jack Welch heard the story and heard what you said to me, he'd, he'd laud me for that decision. And I walked away from that. I said, my God, here's a company with, I don't know how many people GE had at the time, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, a lot of people. And here all the way deep in the organization, this individual reflected the core values and culture of the organization. That's what culture is all about. When, when somebody who is not interacting with the founder, who may never 
interact with the founder is making a decision out in the trenches that the founder says that's the right decision, whether it's a hiring decision, whether it's a product decision, whether it's a HR decision that the founder and the, and the core company values, how do they get translated out? And a lot of it is storytelling and symbolism and so forth. And, and most of it has nothing to do with beer and office space and corporate attire. So I think culture is massively important. I think the best companies invest in it heavily and it doesn't involve a dime of added burn if you do it right. Now, I'd like to ask you to be a little bit of a fortune teller. What do you see happening in the coming year in VC? What should SaaS leaders be concerned about and what should they be excited about? I think the valuations actually will settle out a little bit better than where they are today. I mean, I think, you know, markets tend to overcorrect. You know, things were way too frothy. Now maybe public market multiples are, are perhaps too punitive. And I think they'll settle out, you know, somewhere in between. But, you know, I think SaaS leaders should expect that raising money is going to be much more difficult. Fewer companies are going to get funded. It's going to be harder to raise that late stage capital. So I, I really do think there's going to be a premium on capital efficiency in the next period, which is a, a big contrast for the premium put on growth at all costs, which was the focus over the last three years. So I think that change has happened and I don't see that going away anytime soon. Now it's time for a risky business where we ask our guests to share a story of the most dangerous thing they've ever done. I think the most dangerous thing I've ever done and something I would not recommend to anyone, certainly not my kids, was running with the bulls in Pamplona. Typically, you show up in this town at midnight. There's no place to stay in Pamplona. Pamplona gets a lot of visitors one day a year, so there's not a lot of hostel or you know campground infrastructure. So you basically stay up all night. Typically, that involves some level of inebriation. And then at sunrise, you're expected to run with these animals that theoretically are fully rested and have not had any alcohol in the preceding eight hours. And while they are slower to begin with, once they get ahead of steam, they're actually quite, quite fast. And so I think the whole thing is completely ridiculous. And it's hard to imagine that I actually did it, but I did do it, lived to tell about it. But all it takes is seeing a few folks that you were running with get gored to say, man, Never do it again. I certainly wouldn't recommend it to anyone. So fun, fun story to tell, but that's probably the most dangerous thing I've done. How old were you when you did that? I was probably 23, 23 years old. That makes sense. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. No, like not last year. It was yeah. Ago, so. yeah, I feel like that's on a lot of people's bucket list, though. Is I always was like, there's a lot of cool, cool things to do in the world, and that is not on my list uh, personally. I, I, a whole host of things I've never done that I would rank, that I would put much higher, and a lot of things I have done that I put much higher. So yeah. it's not one that I would encourage people to rush out to do. If you'd like to learn more about Ajay Agrawal, you can visit BainCapitalVentures.com or read his frequent contributions to TechCrunch. Thanks for listening, everyone. Come back in two weeks for the next episode of Ramp, where we'll be talking my favorite topic, marketing. Marketing.